Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line with, from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Hopefully you enjoyed yesterday's show, because if you did, you're probably going to enjoy sh today's show even a little bit better. Maybe you're not into... Uh, homebrewing they're not even interested in it and every once in a while I'm going to come up with a topic that uh, some people aren't going to really be into but I think this is a great topic I think that beer has proven itself over the years to be um, a very good barter item I think it's a very good skill set to have I think for a lot of people they enjoy a, a, you know an occasional beer or maybe even an evening beer every evening and uh, it adds up to significant expense so it's a way to save money It's a way to learn history. It's a way to learn chemistry. Uh, and one of my favorite founders of, of, of the nation is Benjamin Franklin, who said, and I quote, an exact quote, by the way, beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy. So uh, I think it's a great uh, self-reliance, self-sufficiency topic, and we're going to rock on with it today. What's going to be different about today is I'm going to get more into beer styles, more into beer chemistry, more into beer history, and more into beer recipes. I'm going to give you quite a few different recipes today. Um, I will try to get some of them published online available to you, maybe in a document or something like that. Most of this stuff is out of my old notebooks. Some of it's kind of smudged up and all. But most of what I'm going to give you today, other than this, like kind of the generic guideline recipes, are going to be things that I've actually brewed and tweaked over time. And th some of the stuff that, you know, some of my best, I'll even re read a review of one of them to you. Uh, and so you can hear how the beer changed over time. Uh, it was kind of a complex beer that could use some aging and what aging did for it. Uh, before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Sawtooth Tactical. Hey, you want to do business with an American company? Sawtooth Tactical. You want to do business with a veteran? Sawtooth Tactical. You want to do business with a small company that's going to take care of you like you're their only customer because they take care of all their customers that way? Sawtooth Tactical. You want to deal with a company where you can get all the cool stuff to live that tactical lifestyle? Sawtooth Tactical. That's the place to go. You'll find things there like Magpul Magazines. You'll find SOE Tactical Gear and everything else you can think of, and you will get great service from a veteran in an American-owned company. Next up today, ready-made resources. What more can you ask from, from a company than for them to say, hey, this is our name, our name is what we do, and we do what we say, and if you come deal with us, we'll give you exactly what we promised. That's what ready-made resources does. They provide you all the resources for your prepping, ready-made and ready to go on their website. You show up, you order them, and they're shipped out quick, fast, and efficiently, and you get excellent service, excellent pricing, and excellent selection. Everything from gardening tools to tactical self-defense tools to long-term storage food to 12 volt uh, uh, products for your solar and wind projects 12 uh, or um, solar and wind uh, products as well you name it they've got it check them out today if you have not already readymaderesources.com remember if you're a sponsor on the show you are uh, personally endorsed by me folks when you hear me 
say our sponsor of the day is so-and-so. They're not just somebody that showed up with a check. There's a very intensive approval process. I have a listener's ad council. Uh, they're made up of the moderators on the forum. If two or more say no to a sponsor, I can't take them even if I want to. There's a waiting list right now that's several years long at least. People trying to get into that sponsorship pool. It is not like your typical advertising where whoever shows up with a check gets a spot. Just doesn't work that way. I think it's important once in a while that I remind you of that. Uh, on that note, make sure you check out our forum. Our moderators there, the service listener ad council members, also do a great job running that forum. Lots of connections to be made there. I think it's probably one of the best communities online in any subject or genre there is. Ours just happens to be about self-sufficiency, self-reliance, survivalism, that type of thing. Great connections waiting to be made there. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And uh, you support the show at 20 cents an episode, and you get discounts to 25 different vendors. And, hell, it's a great deal. Uh, remember, though, if you are in the military and you would like a military discount for the Member Support Brigade, email me, jack at the com. Give me your branch, your job that you had in the military, the time you've served, and I will give you a special code for uh, your military service. And that is not just for retired and active duty. That includes just prior service. I don't care if you served for two years, four years, whatever it was. You wore the uniform uh, and you did the service. You get the military discount. With that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. Um, yesterday we talked about all the different equipment and we really focused on the equipment that you would need to do what's called extract brewing uh, versus full mash or even partial mash brewing. And that simply means that the the grain portion, the, sh the main sugar fermentable portion, somebody else did the work to get it from a starch to a sugar and put it into some form and then you use that in your, your brewing of beer. Um, let me say something right here at the beginning of today's show. I think it's really important that people understand, especially people that maybe have really enjoyed great microbrews and things like that. They start learning about brewing, and they, they run into beer snobbery in the brewer community or in the drinking community or whatever. There is snobs everywhere. In every niche, every genre, there are snobs. There are people that believe that any beer that's yellow in color, a light-colored beer, is not a serious beer, that it's just it's swill. It's like, well, you know, Budweiser. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about Budweiser here in a minute to, to put some things in perspective for you about how marketing spins things one way or the other. Uh, but that, that's just nonsense. That's like the wine drinker that only thinks that red wines can be seriously good and complex wines. Of course, there's amazing white wines, and there's the, the whole white wine world is is not just limited to low-end Chardonnay. There's amazing Italian whites and French whites and some amazing California whites, and there's some amazing Northwestern and Northeastern Rieslings that are not sweet like candy. So just like that, beer can be the same way. And as you go into brewing, a lot of people that have gone into mash brewing kind of tend to turn their back on the extract brewer and, and, and think that way, that you can't really brew complex beers, uh, special beers, if you're doing extract brewing. That's nonsense, uh, because what you've actually done is you've let a facility that specializes in the conversion process do the conversion. Now, you might not be as self-sufficient as a as a mash brewer and it probably makes sense eventually to learn mash brewing but if you want a really cool hobby you want to brew some really amazing beers there's nothing wrong with extract brewing 
I want to talk a little bit about marketing here at the beginning, and the marketing of Budweiser is a great example of why we can't believe everything that we're told about beer and everything that people have preconceived beliefs about beer. Uh, about and this is kind of interesting. I, I think you'll actually enjoy this if you don't know it already. So everything I'm going to tell you about the the reality of what Beechwood aging does for Budweiser here is true. But the whole little story I'm about to give you is a complete fantasy uh, derived in my head, but it's probably with a guess not far from the truth. My belief is that one day Budweiser wanted to sell more beer, so they got whoever was in charge of their marketing, and this was probably way, way back in the day, you know, when marketing was about, you know, talking to the bars that you had your beer on draft, and this is back, you know, in the 30s and the 40s probably. Uh, and, and, and the marketing guy says, well, I need to better understand our product, so he carts his ass down to the main brewing area, and he talks to the, the brewmaster, and he says to the brewmaster, show me exactly what you do here. And uh, they, so he shows them all the different processes and all, and then they go to these big secondary fermenters where they age the beer under colder conditions, and it's called lagering because the yeast, when a lager, remember from yesterday, ale yeast ferments at a higher temperature on the top, lager yeast will continue to ferment from the bottom at lower temperatures, and he says this is where we age the beer. And we age the beer in here so that... It will completely, totally ferment, and it will come out with a very clean, classic American light lager flavor. Uh, very, very mild, very, very clean tasting. Uh, and that's, that's the lager characteristic, instead of some of the fruitiness of an ale. And the guy says, well, cool. And he looks down into the vat when they're emptying it or when they're filling it or whatever, and he sees all this wood in there. He says, what the hell is that? And the brewmaster says, that's beech wood. And he starts explaining why they have the beechwood. And the marketing guy under his breath is going, beechwood aged. Beechwood aged. And the, the brewmaster's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. You need to understand something about this beechwood. Beechwood is completely neutral. It has no flavor. It adds no character. It doesn't do anything. See, that yeast settles out so much that we don't get a complete fermentation. So we put this wood in there, and it increases all the surface area, and it gives the yeast something to cling to. And since it has more stuff to cling to, we get a better full, complete lagering. So, yeah, it's beechwood aged, Mr. Marketing Guy, but the only reason that we put it in there is just to increase the surface area for the yeast. That's it. The beechwood age doesn't do anything. And the guy says, wait a minute. And he goes and he finds a voiceover guy, because by now we're doing ads with talkies in them, right? And they bring the guy in, and the guy goes, Budweiser is beached wood aged. And even the brewmaster goes, that sounds pretty cool. And next thing you know, it's on the bottle. And America believes that beech wood aging is contributing this massive amount of character to the clean, crisp taste of Budweiser, if you like that swill. And I, I find Budweiser to honestly be swill. I guess that's a little bit of my beer snobbery. But the important takeaway from there is that because people don't know, marketing has power, and marketing can be used for good or evil. Uh, there's political connotations there. But just thinking about beer, that's why a lot of people believe things like, well, darker beers are stronger. Darker beers are stronger. Uh, Guinness is really strong. No, it's not. It's actually relatively mild in alcohol content. In fact, if you drink Guinness in Ireland, you'll find that it has less alcohol than Guinness in America. Why? Because they tax beer in Ireland based on its uh, alcohol content. So one way to reduce your tax is reduce your alcohol content. So there's a lot of myths in beer. And I'm not going to go into a bunch of them and turn like into Norm on Cheers and tell you a bunch of stories you don't want to hear. I just want you to understand that there are a lot of myths about beer. And one of them is that 
if you, it's from the home brew community, if you're a, an extract brewer, you can't do things that are complex and you can't make major character uh, changes in your beer with subtle changes, which is complete nonsense. Um, even the 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 malt the the uh, the uh, mash brewer is doing most of his nuances with things like specialty grains, hops, yeast, things like that. The mash process is just to get the starch to turn into a sugar. That's that's all it really is. So one of the big things that we can do in in home brewing to start adding character and to start uh, making uh, big impacts on. Uh, on our beer and to change its character and to make it more complex is using specialty grains. And I talked about these yesterday, but I didn't really explain the main types and, and exactly what you do with them and what they contribute. Specialty grains are simply, uh, generally it's barley. There are some made out of some different things as well that you can get, but most of those are grains that require a mash process instead of just a steeping. And we're talking about stuff you can steep today. So we take barley and we do different things to it, and it ends up in different characteristics. And then before we use it, we crack it. So we need a grinder or a crushing plate or something like that. And we don't want to grind it into a flour. We want to crack it. So it's just cracked open into pieces. Most home brew shops have um, a grinder there for you. And a lot of mail-order houses, if you want, they can, send, they can pre-grind your specialty grains for you when they send you your specialty grains. Uh, but what you do is you take them and you put them into one of those nylon bags or muslin bag like we talked about yesterday. You put that into your water as you're heating it up and you leave it in there right up till it's about to boil. And then you extract it and you squeeze it out and you get all of this character at it. So what are your specialty grains that are available? The first one is called black patent malt. And that might make you think of a pair of shoes or a belt or something. But black patent malt, or it's also called black malt, is a dark malt, malted barley. It essentially gets black in color from a very high roasting temperature. Black malt can be used to give beer a dark color, but it will imply a slightly burnt or smoky flavor to the beer. Uh, so it's a different dark than just using a dark malt extract. Okay, uh, In home brews, this burnt flavor can be overpowering if too much is used. So some you want to use a little bit sparingly. You, you kind of come down in the scale and you don't roast things quite as hot. You come into what's called chocolate malt. And it's similar to black patent malt, except it just hasn't been roasted as long. It's dark in color, but it doesn't have the burnt flavor of, of black malt. So you get a deep nut-like flavor to your beer. Uh, you get a darkening. So even if you had a light malt extract and that was all you used as your base, adding a little bit of chocolate malt will darken it, start to head it toward the amber color I uh, think so. People that think that a beer, just because it's darker, has got a lot more character, it could be just simply the addition of a little chocolate malt or maybe a little crystal malt. It might not even be uh, the malt that was used for the actual, you know, the extract used in the beer, or if uh, it's a brewery doing it, the, the malt that's really used in the, uh, in the, in the mashing process, right? Uh, and, and these create subtle differences. It's not just about color. It's about flavor and texture. And if you wanted to do, let's say, a nut brown style ale, chocolate malt can start bringing that nuttiness to it. And that's one thing that we can use to bring nuttiness in. The next one kind of going down on the scale uh, of darkness is called crystal malt. Crystal malt is produced using a special malting process that allows some of the starches to be converted to simpler sugars such as sucrose and maltose, inside the grain. Now, see, these simple sugars are fermentable. However, a significant percentage of more complex sugars remain intact and can add body and sweetness and mouthfeel to beer. 
And these sugars also help with head retention in beer. So if you want that beer to have that great, really nice head on it, a little addition of crystal malt will help with that head, head uh, retention. It, it's a good grain to start with if you've never used a specialty grain before. It has a very, fairly mild flavor, and it won't overpower your final product. So it's something I use a lot of because it brings a sweetness to it. And when I saw about the sugars, I want you to fully understand this, that there are there's lots of different types of sugars. And some are very simple, like sucrose and maltose, and some are far more complex. And the ones that are more complex sometimes can't be broken down Uh, very well by yeast. And there's some of that in any malt extract, any anything at all. But when we do crystallization of the malt, basically we've caramelized it is another way to look at it. It's almost like a caramel malt. So the sugars have actually like kind of seeped out. If you look at crystal malt, it looks like it's coated in a really light, thin film of caramel. And some of those sugars are not fermentable. What does that mean? That means that they won't add to the alcohol, but it also means they'll leave a residual sweetness in the beer. So if we're really hopping something highly, but we want some sweetness to counterbalance, we want the bitterness there, but we want to counter a little bit, we can do that with crystal malt. We can also, it will also darken our wort a little bit. It'll give kind of a coppery color uh, to things. So there's a lot to be, again, to be done with specialty grains. One of the uh, other things that we can use is something called roasted barley. And roasted barley is basically just that. It's not malted. It's unmalted barley, uh, so it hasn't been converted to any sugar at all. And it's you, you, it's roasted in an oven at a really high temperature. It turns a desired color. Uh, and this is a specialty grain that will not contribute to any of the final alcohol content in the beer because there's no sugar there. It's used primarily for flaving, flavoring. It adds kind of a nutty flavor to the beer. Um, but it, it's really more of um, like a coffee flavor. So your stouts and your porters will tend to rely on roasted barley. Another one is called carapils or dextrin. And it can lend a range of characteristics to beer. Uh, it's kind of based on how long it's roasted is going to determine what level of flavor it will import to the, impart to the final product. But carapils has no enzymes itself. So if you're a mash brewer, it's generally used in conjunction with other malts that do, do, uh, to contain enzymes to allow for fermentation and yeast uh, propagation, whatever. Uh, but carapils malt uh, is available as mild malt, Vienna malt, Munich malt. And what it really adds is mostly a, a sweetness to your beer and some more body and some more depth and some more complexity. Uh, it's generally used more by mash brewers, but small amounts of it can be used as a specialty malt. Um, another malt that I'm really, really fond of using that's generally considered something that's only used by mash brewers, but I've used it as a specialty grain, and as long as you keep the quantities reasonable, uh, it will work just fine as a specialty grain. It's called honey malt. Uh, honey malt is made by the Grambrinus Malting Corporation, uh, and it's their name for a unique, highly killed German malt uh, called Brumalt. The reality is honey malt looks a lot like caramel malt, but it's processed in a way so that there's uh, no roasty astringency that's sometimes associated with caramel malt's flavor. Uh, the process involves restricting the oxygen flow during the sprouting process, and this develops sugars uh, and a rich malt flavor that makes the malt taste the way it does. It's got like an intense malty sweetness with a hint of honey-like flavor, uh, and it doesn't have the bite that caramel malt has, a little bit of a bite to it. So it's another good adjunct, and it's a way to get, if you wanted like a wisp of honey to a beer without actually using honey, it's one way that you can do that. It's also... Um, Believe it or not, used quite a bit by uh, the uh, Anheuser-Busch uh, Budweiser people.
So uh, there's there's a lot of things that I think are you know undiscovered yet with beer, and these specialty grains kind of lead us down that path of discovery. We can do a lot with them. And I wanted to cover them because when I go into some recipes and all, when I start saying, you know, a quarter pound of this or a quarter pound of that, you'll start to understand what it's doing. So if I told you, for instance, you're going to make a porter and you knew what a porter tasted like, you're going to add cherries and make a cherry porter, in your mind, you can kind of say, well, I know what that would taste like, kind of chocolatey, coffee-ish with some cherry. Well, now you should understand that when I talk about black patent malt, we're talking about a nuttiness, a burnt quality. Um, it can be overdone, but it's got a nutty, coffee-like uh, taste. The crystal malt's got a sweetness, a depth, a complexity, more body. Roasted barley's even more coffee and nut-like than the black patent. Uh, honey malt's got that sweet honey. Caramel's got the body and the bite. So you start to like, you know, put these things in your mind so you can think of, well, what can we do with them? Before we get into recipes, though, today, I want to talk about hops and yeast. Let's talk a little bit about hops. I don't want to go too deep into it. We could do, you know, if this was homebrew radio or something like that, we could do multiple shows on just individual varieties of hops. But one thing I want you to know about hops, when you brew beer, like I said yesterday, you put a, a, a certain quantity of hops in right at the beginning of your boil process. You boil that for an hour. And that is your bittering hops, your hops that are going to balance the sweetness of the final final beer. Uh, so you want balance of, of bitterness and sweet together to end up with a good balanced beer. So you also would then add hops if you wanted flavor or aroma toward the end because more of the flavor in the aroma remains. So what a lot of people think is then that doesn't, it doesn't even matter what I use for a bittering hop. I can use Northern Brewer, I can use Tetanang, I can use Fugles, I can use Cascade. I can use any hop out there, and there's not going to be much flavor left. There's always flavor left in the hop. The bitterness has a distinctive flavorness within the bitterness. Uh, some of the, I'd say, I'd say the hop that is the easiest to discern, even at the bittering hop level, even if you don't aroma hop or dry hop or, or flavor hop, an ale, is Cascade. Classic Northwestern American hop that's part of all those, not all of those, but a lot of those great ales that come out of like the Seattle area. Why? Because Cascade grows really good up there, but it has a citrusy character. And if you drink a beer with Cascade hops in it, you're going to notice that citrusy character. It's going to be there. And if you make something like a British brown and you use Cascade as your bittering hop, um, it's not going to be in character. It's not going to taste like a British brown. It's going to taste, I don't care what else you've done, it's going to taste more like a Northwest American brown ale or amber ale than it's going to taste like a British ale because the hops are out of character. Hops can have that big of an impact. When we move in with hops to flavoring hops, so now we take those Cascade hops and we drop them in for the last 10 minutes, so there's that, that citrus flavor is really up front. Uh, maybe I throw in a little bit more right at the end for a little bit in the nose, and I've got the aroma and the taste and the bitterness from Cascade. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's almost to a point where anybody with, with an understanding of different hot flavors and smells would immediately from, you know, sitting it on the table in front of them in, in the right environment where you get a good aroma would know already there's Cascade hops in there. They're that distinctive. And some other hops are in their own way distinctive in their subtleness or their, their assertiveness and some 
some are very, very similar. You know, uh, Northern Brewer and Willamette are really, really close to each other, uh, to, to me anyway. So hey, some on the extreme end can change the complete character of beer is the point here. So when you're making beer and you're trying to be true to style, try to use a true to style hop and understand that that's usually regional. There's a reason they use Cascade hops in Seattle because it grows like crazy up there. It's a, you know, there's a reason they use Fugel's hops in England because they grow like crazy there. So you can change the hops and see what happens. Just understand that it's not a very subtle change. It's actually a significant change. The next one is on the bitterness on the uh, on hops. When you get recipes, you'll generally see uh, you know one and a half ounces of Fugles, two ounces of Cascade, whatever. But it'll generally also give you um, either a recommendation for HPUs, which is Home, uh, home brew, uh, home bitterness units or an IBU international bitterness units or it'll tell you what the percentage of hops used in the recipe were. So it'll say like, uh, Fugel's hops 4.6%, one ounce. Well, HBUs are a simplified method of making your calculations and they're probably the one that I think is the best for folks to use. And it's, when you look at an extract recipe, it almost always gives you that. And if it doesn't, if it gives you the hops and the, the content and, and the, you know, the percentage of acid in the hops, you can figure it out yourself real easy. And it's about as simple as math gets. You take the percentage of alpha acid in the hops times the number of ounces of hops. So if I had a 4% alpha acid hop and I was supposed to use an ounce and a half, I would get six home bitterness units, six HBUs. So even if I didn't have the HBUs, if the person that gave me the recipe said four four ounce four four percent hops and used two ounces, I know it's HBUs. If my my hops are five percent, I can then calculate how many ounces of hops I need to use, and it's it's pretty simple. Again, if you get the uh, the the complete the new complete joy of homebrewing by Charlie Papazian I mentioned yesterday that's all in there and it's really very very simple but I'll also tell you this this is something that you can get really too too intense about trying to do exactly what the other person did if somebody says to me I used an ounce and a half of 4.5 percent hops and they were Fugles and I go to my homebrew store and I get my hops or my hop pellets or my you know my my uh, compressed hops or whatever, and they're, uh, instead of, you know, what I say, 4.7, they're uh, 5.1. I'm probably going to use just about the same amount. If there's, you know, more than a full percentage point, then I'm going to start calculating. And the nice thing is that most, like, varieties of hops are generally, not always, but generally pretty close. And sometimes you go to a home brew shop, and they've got the pellets and the, the, the hops, whole hops and stuff in a refrigerator, and they might have, let's say, Willamette, and you might be looking for 5.1. And what they have there might be six, and then maybe they have pellets that are five three. So you can buy whichever one is closer to what you're looking for at the time. I generally don't worry about that. Um, I buy large amounts of hops, at least when I was brewing full time, I did large amounts of different varieties of hops that I commonly use. I keep them in the deep freezer, and and that's always worked just perfectly for me, and I've never had any problems. And again, if it's close to me, it's always been close enough. I also need to talk to you a little bit about yeast today and uh, different types of yeast. Uh, there's a lot of different yeasts available to home brewers. A lot of people are down on dried yeasts. Good quality dry yeast uh, for ales is just fine. It works really good. In fact, it often starts quicker for um, you when you pitch it uh, than, your, uh, than your liquid yeast. Because it, in the process of turning it into a dried yeast, 
it's already taken up a lot of nutrient and it's already kind of ready to go. I talked yesterday about you take your dried yeast, you need to sterilize whatever you're going to do this in a glass, a jar, what have you. Not sanitize. Sanitize first, sterilize. This means um, you know flaming the top with some uh, grain alcohol or something like that if you have to. And uh, you, you add about 90 degree water to that, clean water. You put your yeast in there and you let it hydrate while you're brewing. And then after your wort is cool enough, you pitch it. So that's basically how you do a dry yeast. Liquid yeast generally comes in a, a foil pack and it's got uh, some stuff in it that's, that's food for, you know, some, basically some, uh, some, some malt sugar that's food for the yeast. And it's got the yeast in a separate pack. It's kept refrigerated. And basically you smack it and you break the internal package and it just sits there and you mix it up. And it'll puff up. And the package will tell you how long before you're going to pitch it to do this. But it'll puff up like a balloon. And when you use that type of yeast, all you have to do is cut it open and dump it into your fermenter, making sure that if you're using a carboy, you've sterilized the lip uh, so that if any runs across it, it, it. When you're sanitizing, you're getting things as clean as possible to give your good yeast guys the best chance uh, of being the, the dominant force Right, and to keep down all other uh, bacteria and wild yeast uh, to a minimum. There's always going to be a little bit of that. But when you're actually, anything that's coming into contact with the yeast culture itself, that needs to be sterilized. So we're talking alcohol or flame for that. Uh, don't sterilize the yeast itself. Don't pour alcohol in your yeast. Kill it. Right? Yeast actually dies from alcohol exposure, like any other microorganism will high enough levels. So another thing about yeast to understand is different yeast can ferment at different levels. Some yeasts are more tolerant than other yeast. One of the tricks you can use, for instance, if you want to push beer to a higher alcohol level and get more full fermentation out of some higher gravity beers, is to do things like after the initial fermentation subsides, you pitch some champagne yeast which is designed, it is a specific strain of yeast that's designed to ferment at higher alcohol and higher uh, acidity levels that your, your beer starts to acidify and go up in alcohol content as it ferments. So liquid yeast is pretty straightforward when you're purchasing it. Now, moving into the realm of self-sufficiency, there's a lot of different ways that you can um, culture your own yeast and cultivate yeast. It's a little bit beyond what I want to get into today because it gets into some level of, you know, laboratory level chemistry if you don't want to do it at a very small, uh, very, uh, refined level, uh, and trying to purify certain strains out to certain characteristics and all. But there's some easy ways to be self-sufficient with yeast. One is simply the, uh, reuse of slurry. So when you have your big primary fermenter, When you either rack to a secondary fermenter or go ahead and pull it off to a bottle, uh, bottling bucket and do some bottling, uh, at the bottom you'll have maybe two or three inches of, of heavy slurry, and that's pretty much just yeast. It's dead yeast and it's inactive yeast. It's yeast that's used up all of the stuff and fallen down. Well, you know, maybe uh, four to six ounces of that uh, taken aside, put into a, again, sterilized container, seal, uh, you, you know, you can't actually be sealed because there can still be some fermentation going on. So loosely covered and placed into a refrigerator under some of the beer to help protect it, um, can be kept in there for, you know, five, six days before you brew again and repitch. The best way to do this is plan on bottling day or racking day. If you're going to rack to a secondary, and again, there's two, that's when you have two fermenters. Um, when you're going to do that, on that day, also brew. 
So get a continuous cycle going of brewing more beer. And all you do then is just use that slurry straight away, and it'll get going right again. And that's one way when you have um, a really yeast you're really happy with, no matter what its original source was, uh, to keep that going. Um, next up, uh, this is kind of one you want to kind of go to another level. There are some beers out there that are bottle conditioned. One of the very expensive ones that I'm quite fond of is Chimay. And Chimay has a lot of unique characteristics from a few different things, uh, but it's basically a dark, it's an amber to amber dark beer uh, made with a boosted alcohol content because they use something called Belgian candy sugar, which is sugar made from sugar beets, and that gets you higher alcohol without getting heavier body. And then the fruitiness in it, There's a, if you've ever had Chimay, it has a very fruity, estery characteristic, it's all from the, the yeast. Well, now there's a yeast strain that you can go out and buy, and it's been around, I think, for 20 years almost now in these foil packets. It's pretty daggone close to exactly what Chimay is, and you can use that whenever you're trying to emulate that Belgian Abbey style of beer. I'm going to give you a recipe later that uses it. But what you can also do is you can take that bottle of Chimay, and you can pour out your three glasses to share with your buddies, and everybody has a little glass of Chimay, and you've just killed a $12 bottle of beer. And you can leave about an inch of beer in the bottom of that, And you can sterilize your, your, the mouth of that bottle so that there's no contamination whatsoever and sterilize an airlock and a little mini airlock that's designed to go on top of a beer bottle. And you can boil up a little bit of malt extract, uh, let's say a, a half a cup of it with enough water to almost fill the bottle. Okay, And then you can put that into your bottle. Again, you have to make sure everything's sterilized. And you put that airlock on there and you sit it over in a you know, nice dark location where it's nice and warm, 70-ish, 75 degrees. And in just a little while, you'll start to see it bubble. And it'll just be like a little bitty mini fermentator. You know, a little, little, little bitty mini fermentation vessel, that's what it is. You're making a mini batch of beer, and you're making a great big huge pile of yeast slurry that's the exact yeast strain from Chimay. And you can do that with any bottle-conditioned ale, which means 99% of beers do not qualify. It's only beers that have a sediment in the bottom that are unpasteurized, and they don't use either something called cold filtering or heat pasteurization. For instance, if you look at, at Miller Genuine Draft, uh, it says never heat pasteurize, but they cold filter. So they literally micro-filter out the yeast. So that's why there's no sediment in, in, in Miller Genuine Draft. You might also wonder why it doesn't get that skunky flavor I talked about from green bottles and clear bottles yesterday. And that's because it's specially treated in some way that prevents the hops from going rancid under the UV light. So a little bit more information. But you can create your own yeast. The next thing I want to talk about before I go into uh, some recipes, and again, these are recipes that are very uh, very unique to me. Uh, they all started out with somebody else's recipe, uh, a lot of Papazian's recipes, and they've got modified. And if I have the uh, history, if I know where I started, I'll... Uh, I'll tell you how I got to the end when I get there. But before that, I want to give you some of the adjuncts, as, as they're called, things that can be added to a beer. Uh, the number one and most popular one in the home brewing community is honey. And that's because it works so beautifully well. It does so much for just about any beer. I, I haven't put honey in anything and went, damn, I should have done that. I've done it and I've gone, okay, this is, this is no longer true to style. I've done stouts. 
And I've done a stout now to two pounds of honey to a basic stout recipe. And it had more alcohol and it lightened it up. And it was more like a porter than a stout. And But it had that creamy, slightly tannish head. And it was still damn good. Uh, I don't think you can screw anything up with honey. I really don't. You do have to be careful with honey. Uh, honey, the best way to add your honey is... You've done your full boil, you've added your your last bit of hops, and then you dump your honey in and stir it up after the boil has ended, uh, rather than boiling it through the entire period. That'll be enough to heat pasteurize it, but you won't lose the subtle notes of your honey. And the important thing about honey, especially the lighter the beer, as you move into lighter ambers and, 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 and pale ales and things like that, the more you let the honey come through, the more distinctive notes from the honey you can get. So you will notice that if you use cheap uh, clover, Burleson's clover honey from the supermarket, it's a great honey for making beer. It really is. It, it adds some floral notes, and there's some of that clover essence there and all, but it's not got a lot of character other than just pure honey character. But if you do something like you get a couple of pounds of mesquite honey uh, from someone that keeps bees in where there's a lot of mesquite trees, and it's got that distinctive mesquiteness to it, if you're going to use that to make a beer, don't don't make an overly hopped, overly heavy beer Use something subtle and light, like a light wheat or a light American ale, and let those notes come through. Or do a mead with it, which we won't get into today, but mead is basically wine made just from honey, water, and yeast, and something that provides some nutrient, because the honey has a hard time fermenting without nutrient. The nice thing about honey and beer, there's tons of nutrients in barley to help the yeast ferment, so you don't have to worry about it all. Uh, next up, though, fruit. I love fruit. I, again, fruit's something that we can do tremendous amounts of things with. Fruit's also very important in the way that it's added. Uh, there are, in most of your homebrew stores, you'll find all types of fruit extracts that are concentrated fruit extracts. Uh, cherry, raspberry, things like that. And you know what? They were great. I've done cherry wheat. Uh, using a cherry extract, and it was damn good. So you can use the extracts, and that makes it easy. Uh, pitch them in right before bottling or pitch them in right before fermentation. It's up to you. I generally like to pitch those right before I bottle. Um, they're generally sealed. They're you know they're 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 uh, completely uh, sterile, uh, so they're safe to do that way. Some people prefer to put them in uh, into the the hot wort before they chill it, just as a precautionary thing to keep from getting any kind of infection into your beer. Um, but I, I've used them right at bottling time, and I've had good results with that. But if you're going to use actual fruit, which is a lot more fun, a little bit more work, and a lot more practical for people that can do things like go out and pick wild blackberries or grow raspberries in your backyard or, or, or have a cherry tree or have a bunch of apples that they can use because apple and beer is just awesome together. It's, it's something you wonder why people don't do it more. You wonder why there's not a good commercial beer with an apple uh, connotation to it. Not a cider, uh, but just a beer with some apples in it. The problem with fruit is that it has pectin, and the pectin will set and it will create a haze. It won't taste bad. It just won't look right. Um, and it, it can create a level of a body that you're not looking for, the heaviness that you're not looking for either. And if you boil fruit, well, then you set the pectin, and that happens. It's how you make jelly or jam. That's where that comes from. Okay, So that's what we're talking about when we say about pectin. But what you do is the same thing you do with the honey. Right as the boil's over and the boil has stopped, but the, the, the word is still really hot, that's when you add your fruit. If you're going to do this with a like apple or pear, and yes, you could use pear and beer, um, it, it needs to be sliced. 
uh, washed, and then you know, and you'll kill any bacteria with the heat, so it'll effectively pasteurize it. But that's pretty much all you have to do. If you want to use like cherries or um, raspberry or blackberry, there's two things you can do. One is you can crush it. That's kind of messy, but it works really, really good. And then the other thing that you can do is you can actually um, freeze it. And most fruits, berries, etc., when you freeze them, will rupture, and then you won't have to crush them, and they will uh, impart a great deal of their flavor and juice into uh, your, your beer. The best results I've had with fruit is not just steeping it and then racking it into the fermenter. This is when I definitely use a plastic fermenter, and I put the so you, more of a dump than a siphon uh, or a drain, and the fruit, everything goes into the fermenter when I do fruit. I always rack off the fruit, though, a week into the fermentation or less. So four, five, six days, seven days into the fermentation, uh, I will rack to a secondary fermenter glass, and I will finish the beer under an airlock in there. Um, that's just, I've had much better results with that. You want to use a larger fermentation vessel a lot of times when you use fruit. Remember we talked about a blow-by hose yesterday? Sometimes fruit can get up in that hose and create back pressure and cause problems. The more head space you can give. So if you can get yourself a plastic fermentation vessel that's in the 8-gallon range and you do 6 gallons of initial uh, uh, beer uh, with the fruit included, you'll be less likely to have that problem and you may not even need the, uh, the blow-over hose. Uh, just saying. Uh, chili peppers. People have made some interesting beer with chili peppers. I never have, but I've drank some really cool ones. Uh, I had a beer that was basically made with jalapenos. I had a wine that was made with jalapenos. Both were really unique. They weren't really spicy at all. Um, the wine, I was like, I like this. It's familiar to me, but I have no idea what it is. And, uh, you know, it was like, I think it was the day before the Super Bowl. And it was a homebrew shop get-together. And the guy's like, well, you'll probably be eating some tomorrow. And I'm like... What, nachos or chili? I mean, well, I don't. I, I was. I just really had no idea. And he said it's jalapeno, uh, and it was very unique. So you can experiment with chili peppers, and I would add them the same way you do fruit. Here's one that's kind of a specialty malt, but people don't generally think of it. You can get smoked uh, malt. You can get. Plain smoked malt, this is kind of a generally smoked malt. You can also get kind of a peat smoked malt. These are things to talk to your home brew shop about or check home brew websites about. With a, with a peat smoked malt, it's, it's great for character if you want to make kind of a scotch ale that has that peaty smokiness to it. And why? Because they roasted their malt in Scotland using what they had and what they had in abundance was peat. Right, So that's, that's part of that character that you get there in some scotch ales. Regular smoked malt just has kind of a smoky flavor to it. You can make a, a, what's called a Rotsch beer, which is a German smoked beer. Uh, generally, I think Rotsch beers are generally lagers, but I've made ale versions thereof, and they're very good. There's also a beer called the Schwarz beer. Schwarz beer is a black German lager. I've made basically the same recipe using an ale uh, yeast, which would be closer to a porter or a, a stout, but using the German recipe. So it's got the same body, it's got a little bit more fruity esters, but it's a kind of a, a, a hybrid, I guess you would say there, but it's really an ale because it's using an ale yeast, and I've added smoked malt to that, and that's awesome. That is, that is, a, that is a beer to have with a steak or a big piece of lamb. It's an amazing beer. And, and that's what I want to, even though I'm going to give you some recipes here in a minute, I want you to understand that it's up to you to go out and find recipes, formulate your own, play with this stuff, 
Find a base, and I'll give you like some bases, and then you can take those and, and do whatever you want to with them. Um, next up, pumpkin. Uh, I liked when I when I was brewing, I would pretty much make two or three batches of pumpkin ale uh, starting in September, maybe one in September, one in October, one in November, uh, one a bit higher gravity for long term aging, something to bring back memories of fall in February when it's cold. But the stuff that was made in, in, in September, October was generally drank around the end of October through Halloween and into Christmas and given to people and, you know, add spices like nutmeg and cinnamon and things like that. But uh, pumpkin, you do the same way you do any other uh, fruit. It's vegetable instead of a fruit. But basically, add your pumpkin at the end, include it into the fermentation vessel, rack off. Now, here's uh, one that you might be like, really? But, yeah, really. Uh, brown sugar and or molasses are both great things to use. Backstrap molasses. Uh, especially with some of your darker beers, adding a sweetness. There are a lot of sugars in molasses that are those complex sugars that don't ferment out. So you use a little bit more aggressive hopping on the bitterness to balance it, and you get the residual sweetness. Uh, it can be really nice in a dark brown ale, uh, using a little bit of brown sugar or molasses just to bring some character to it, or using more in different styles. Uh, and last, but last, last one is maple syrup, which I've never done, but intrigues me. I've read a lot of recipes with it. It's one of those things that maybe someday I'll try, but I haven't. Uh, but I've also had beer. I've never done this myself, but I've had beer made from maple sap. So it's not as heavy. So instead of using five gallons of water, basically, I've had beer where the person has taken two gallons of sap, which is nowhere near as thick as, you know, you, I don't know what you get out of that, probably, what, a quarter gallon of syrup, uh, and use that sap as the substitute for water. Uh, and that was done with kind of a, uh, like a porter style, uh, maple porter, and that was Badass. I don't remember how that guy made that exactly, but uh, it was an amazing beer. So now let's get into uh, to some beers that I've kind of developed myself and refined a little bit. Um, let's start out with, I always talk about this beer, and people always ask me for a recipe. And you can make this with a little bit more body by just increasing the pale malt extract by one pound. But this is a classic brown mild. Now let me tell you the story of brown mild, where it comes from. Brown mild is a very traditional English ale. It was uh, a kind of a working man, blue collar man, poor man's ale. Uh, a lot of times when they were making a porter, uh, which is uh, one off from a stout, uh, kind of a little bit of a coffee flavor, dark black beer. What they would do is they would run the first mash through and make a porter and then use the same mash and, and extract from that a second time, almost like a second squeeze in, in wine, right? Where you get like, uh, you know, a first, a lot of times a red Ziffendale is, uh, you know, you squeeze the red grapes, you ferment them on the, uh, on the skins and you get that red Ziffendale. A lot of white Ziffendale, what they do is they take the, the spent grapes, add water, add sugar, and do a secondary and get a blush wine. So kind of like that, not the same thing, but kind of like that. And they would extract this off, and they would make this lighter beer, because a lot of the sugar and all the goodness had gone into that dark, rich porter. And this would make a light beer, a beer with an alcohol content of somewhere between 2.5% and 3.5%. Uh, very easy drinking. So it was very popular in the, in the, the steel uh, regions and in the, in the, in the coal-fired uh, factory regions uh, of, of England and northern London where these guys would come into the pubs, they could buy the beer for a little bit less, and they could drink quite a bit of it without you know, stumbling too hard. And uh, it had, you know, when you're tired and you're 
parched. It's not heavy, so it's got a refreshing character to it. Uh, so here's how you make it. Here's how I make it anyway. Four pounds of pale malt extract. And to contrast that, average amounts of malt extract will range somewhere between six to eight pounds for a five-gallon batch. So you can see that we're going somewhere between two-thirds to a half of a standard gravity beer or ale. Um, one pound of what they call 80-degree crystal malt. And usually your crystal malt is going to range from 60 to 80 degrees. I like to use an 80-degree malt. It's about the darkness and how long it's been roasted. Um, if you find a little bit lighter roasted crystal malt, it's fine. It's, this is bringing some body to an otherwise kind of very light beer. Five ounces of chocolate malt, two ounces of black patent malt. This is important here if you want this beer true to style. 1.5 ounces of Fugel's hops at about 4%. So that's six bitterness units of Fugel's hops. Uh, a teaspoon of gypsum, uh, which attempts to replicate the water from that part of England because it's a hard water. And one packet, and the best ale yeast I've found to do this with is cheap, dry, Edme ale yeast. You'll find it at any homebrew store out there. It's a very tradition, Eng traditional English-style ale yeast, and it works great for this. Um, and, and that's pretty much it. It's um, and Then your priming sugar. You can use three-quarters of a cup of sugar, uh, corn sugar. And you want to go ahead and buy the corn sugar. Don't use table sugar for your priming. And prime that with, with corn sugar. Or the other thing you can do is use one and a quarter cups of light dry malt extract. Uh, that was something I left out yesterday with priming. If you want to stay pure malt in your home brewing, when you prime, you get the dry malt extract, even if you use the syrup in your brewing, and uh, a cup and a quarter of that, three quarters of a cup of corn sugar. When you prime with honey, a half cup of honey. Those are your priming ratios to a five-gallon batch of beer. With this beer, the first time you make it, do not do anything different than what I've just told you. All right? Uh, there's no aroma hops. There's no flavor hops. It's just an ounce and a half of Fugles, six bitterness units of Fugles. Use Fugles in this beer. Uh, that's F-U-G-G-L-E-S. And make it this exact way, kind of like the beer bread recipe I gave you, right? Because now we can build off of this and we can do other things with it. And you'll know what changes. You know, maybe next time it was a little bit too light for you, but you go to five pounds of malt extract. Don't be afraid of a light beer. I promise you, this is a light beer that you can have two or three of without getting tipsy, that you can cut the grass and have one or two without cutting your foot off, that you can feel refreshed or you're not going to feel so dehydrated from. Um, and it's, it's really, really outstandingly good. And it's not, you know, that light yellow, uh, beer that we think of when we think of Budweiser or Coors or other watery type beers. The next one I want to talk to you about is something called Bandit Honey Ale. Uh, as I've said before, I never did much in the way of lagers because I didn't have, when I first started making beer, folks, I lived in an apartment. That's how long ago it was. And the concept of having a place for 30, 60 days to keep uh, a fermenter in a temperature range of about 40 degrees to age out that, law, that secondary fermentation, that lager process, was just not available to me. So I stuck to what I could do, which was ales. So uh, there is a, uh, a, a very well-known, very old recipe called Rocky Raccoon's Honey Lager. 
And I decided I would convert it and do some things with it and play with it and try some different things and come up with my own version of it as an ale. And it's kind of a, an American pale ale is what you end up with, with honey and with some good hop character as well. Um, you don't have to get as crazy with the hops as I have, but let me just tell you, this has worked really well for me. We're going to start out with three pounds of plain extra light dry extract. And three pounds of plain extra light extract. So it's extra light both, but one is powder and one is syrup. Just trust me, it's, it creates a level of complexity. Could you use six pounds of one or six pounds of the other? Sure. It won't be the same as what I've made, but why does it have to be? But that's, that's the recipe I've come up with. Two and a half pounds of light honey. So this is where you do want to use something like a Burleson's honey or something like that. But you could use a mesquite, you could use a wildfire, you could use a cherry blossom, you could use any type of honey is going to come through beautifully in this, uh, but your lighter honeys are going to work better. You want something too overpowering. Um, you want a half pound of that honey malt that I talked about. You want a half pound of something I didn't talk about, but you won't have any trouble getting it. It's called toasted malt. Uh, and those are your specialty grains for this recipe. You're going to want a, um, a half ounce of Cascade hops for boiling, a half ounce of Saz hops, S-A-Z-Z hops for boiling. On your flavoring hops, you're going to want a half ounce of Fugles and a half ounce of Hollertau. And your finishing hops, uh, you're going to want a half ounce of Saz. So there's a lot of different hop varieties going on here. Uh, there's actually, what, four. Do you have to use them all? No. But, again, this is something I worked on for a long time, and I came up with this. So, the way you use this, you take your honey mart and your toasted malt in your kettle, and I, for this, I, what I've determined was to get the temperature of the kettle up to 155 degrees. We're almost doing a partial mash thing here to get the most out of that honey malt. We're not going to go through all the complexity, but we're going to, we're going to use our thermometer. We're going to get the pot to 155. We're going to put that in there. We're going to turn our heat up. We're going to bring it back to 155. We're going to watch the thermometer. We're going to pay attention and we're going to try to hold it at 155 degrees for 20 minutes. Then we're going to go ahead and remove the grains. Because the, and when we do that, we're going to get your wooden, pull your bag up and get your wooden spoon and against the side of your kettle, just mash every bit of goodness you can get out of those specialty grains. We use the toasted malt and the honey malt. Neither one is really designed to be used as a typical specialty grain. So we've done almost a little bit of partial mash. But we've done a very easy, simplified method. We're trying to bring character and body to the beer uh, without getting complicated. Uh, and it is that simple. And 20 minutes is not real hard to hold that 100. And if it goes down to 150 and up to 160, it's okay. 162, 163, no big deal. Back your heat down. Just keep it in that range as best you can for 20 minutes. All right, then you're going to add your malt. Bring it to a boil at that point. Once you get it boiling, add your malt extract and your honey and your boiling hops. Boil it for 50 minutes. Then add fugles uh, at a half ounce for five minutes. Then, so the fugles go first with your flavoring. Then add your holler towel for five more minutes. Okay? Then remove from heat, and after you remove it from heat, add a half ounce of your Saz hops. Allow that for three minutes. Then chill your wort. Alright? Sounds complicated. It's not. Again, this is one I probably need to get into text for you guys. 
Uh, and then pitch a good ale yeast. Um, you can use Edme. You can use any good quality ale yeast. And you want to use kind of an American or English ale yeast with this. You don't want to use like a Belgian or a wheat or something that's got a lot of yeast character to it, the way the Belgians and the wheats that have the banana flavors and all do. You want to stick to kind of a very neutral ale yeast strain for this. Uh, that Again, Edme, which is an English ale yeast strain, works very, very well for it. Um, One, this is, this is how you get kind of a little bit of a clean finish like a lager. It's a cheat. When the fermentation is over, okay, it's, it looks like it's done. It looks like nothing else is going to happen. It's settled out. You've racked it to a secondary, uh, and it, it's clear, and it's, it's happy, and you're sure it's finished. Pitch a little bit of champagne yeast into it, all right? And that's going to go in there, and it's going to take care of the last little bit of what you can get fermented since you're not doing a long lagering process. Do that about three to four days before bottling, and then bottle as normal with your priming sugar. And this one I like to go ahead and prime with a half cup of honey because the honey's already there, and that way I'm not bringing corn sugar in. I'm not bringing any heaviness of additional malt. Bandit Honey Ale. Jack Spirico worked on that one, folks, for a long, long time to come up with that exact uh, recipe. A lot of my other recipes are more just kind of throw this and throw that in there, but that one I'm pretty proud of. Everybody that's tried that one's loved it. I'm gonna be honest with you guys. I'm giving you some of my, you know, my insider secrets that I developed, and the next one is one of the beers that I'm probably the most proud of that I've ever brewed. Um, and I took a long time to come up with a final name for it, but I call it Conversion Pollinator Triple, and it's because it's done in the style of a Belgian Abbey Triple, which is a very high gravity but easy to drink beer, um, uh, like a Chimay uh, style, but a, but a, a, a clear uh, beer, a, a light colored beer. Uh, with all that fruit estuary characteristics. This is what I'm going to read you, uh, my own personal reviews of my own beer after it was made. Do not let the simplicity of this recipe, I'll give you the basic recipe uh, straight away. Don't let the simplicity trick you, and uh, don't change anything, and have patience and let time run its course with this, because it takes time for something like this to really mature. Um, and listen very carefully when I give you the secret to how to re really make it work. All right, the basic recipe, 12 pounds of pale malt extract, and I used the syrup for this, and I've done it with uh, uh, dry as well, and I've gotten great results both times, and I think I like the results a little bit better when I use a dry malt extract with it. Five pounds of honey, and uh, you want to use a light clover-style honey for this. You do not want to bring uh, mesquite into this one at all. Um, two ounces of northern brewer hops, Um, and you know, you don't really sweat the, the, the bitterness units on that. Northern Brewer is going to be perfect for this. Uh, and you're not getting anything that's so high that it's going to throw it off. And you're going to want to run that on about a 45 minute boil, uh, and one ounce of Saz hops for a five minute seep at the end. 
And then the most important thing, uh, the, the yeast that you use to make this, you want to use the product made by, it's called Y-Yeast, and that's these foil packets I've talked about. And you want to use Yeast Strain 1214 Belgian Abbey, and you don't want to use anything else if you're using a commercial yeast. About the only other way that I would get yeast for this is a previous batch taking the slurry, because it's the same thing, or when I talked about cultivating yeast, if you cultivated Chimay yeast, it would work very well for this. But it, with the investment of 12 pounds of extract and 5 pounds of honey, there's a lot of money put into this one. I would use a, I would use the Belgian Abbey Yeast Strain 1214. That's what I would do. I wouldn't risk any kind of contamination because this is too special of a beer that you're going to wait too long for to find out that you've screwed something up and ruined it. Now, the secret. The secret is this. Um, this is a very, very high-gravity beer. A uh, specific, specific gravity starts out at about 1.112 and ends down around 1.025. That means it starts out very heavy and it ends very, very light. That means there's a lot of alcohol in it. That's what it means. And this is not alcohol. This is not a beer that you go get your, you smack, get smashed in the face off of because it's a waste. This is something that's savored with good friends, a bottle or two at a time, and that is all. I call it conversion. Uh, because every person that I ever gave this to that was a beer lover, lover seemed to get into home brewing because of it. It converted people to home brewers. Um, but because of that high alcohol level, even though this Belgian Abbey yeast has a very high tolerance for alcohol, it can kind of peter out. So this is the trick. You run the fermentation for two weeks. When you make the beer, you only use the malt extract. You do not put the honey in. Two weeks into fermentation, okay, and, and this is important, you leave it in the primary fermenter where all that yeast slurry is, and that yeast population is really, really high. Okay, so you want to use a bigger fermenter than necessary for your primary fermenter in this. So this is where you're using your 6.5-gallon pail or your 6.5-gallon carboy. You want some room, and you want to be, have room for when the secondary fermentation happens. Two weeks into it, you take your honey. You boil enough water to dissolve five gallons of honey, which is probably about three-quarters to a gallon of water. You dissolve your honey in the water. That pasteurizes it. Well, as soon as it boils, you take it off, dump your honey in. Maybe you ladle some, some of the hot water in uh, to your honey containers to get all your honey out. You take that five pounds of honey in water. You wait for it to cool just a little bit because you're adding it to that big thing. You're not going to kill your yeast off with it. You dump it into your fermenter after it's already been there two weeks. It will almost over, you know, within an hour or two, go crazy. It will be, have been very, very clear looking. It will get hazy. It will start, it'll look like it was just, like you just pitched the yeast the first time. It'll go nuts because that yeast is so full of nutrient. It's so still active even though it started to settle out. It's, it's just ready to go again. You've given it more sugar and it's going to take off. Let it sit in that fermenter for about another two weeks. Now rack to your secondary fermenter. Let it clear. And let it clear for about two more weeks. Now it's up to you. You can rack one more time to another secondary fermenter, which is not really a bad idea with something with this much to allow to settle out of it. Uh, or you can go straight away and bottle at that time. When you bottle, a half cup of honey. We're not going to put any, any corn sugar or anything into this wonderful beer. Put that into a bottle. And uh, you know, do your typical bottling procedures and put it away. Take one bottle 
and put it somewhere where you'll be able to get to it in two weeks. Take another bottle, put somewhere where you'll be able to get to it in a month, and put the rest of it away where you can't get to it or you will, be, will not be tempted to get to it for about a good three months to give it a full aging. Now, with that in mind, I want to read to you my review of my own beer and the dates that they were reviewed. Okay, so the first review is uh, from about, it's been the bottle for about two weeks. And here's the review that I gave it. Beautiful, thick, white head, pretty golden color, slightly cloudy. So it was still a little bit cloudy at this point um, because it had so much going on with it. Lively bubbles, aroma, floral hops, and alcohol evident. First taste is very fruity, a bit of uh, some sour flavor, but pleasant. A little bit of spice, reminiscent of nutmeg, and I'm being kind to myself when I wrote that review, folks, because I just put so much effort into this. Um, so, and I, this is my first batch of this, so it wasn't really that great. It didn't really blow me away yet. Uh, this is from a week later. Uh, hops are floral aroma from honey. Hops and floral aroma from honey is present. Wonderful in just a few days. Significantly more Trappist character is evident. So that fruitiness was coming out from the uh, the Trappist ale use. Very similar to Duval, though not as sweet. I can't wait to taste it in a month. Here's a review um, from five months later. Float a dime on the head. Slightly fruity aroma. More malt evident. Alcohol heat has mellowed. Clear golden color. Tra Trappist esters are evident. But there's something more in the finish. Hard to describe, but very pleasant. Maybe a little apple flavor. Wonderful beer. You could drink quite a lot of this fast, but you would miss a lot and probably miss your bed when you went to sleep at night. And that beer changed so much in those five months because it, you know, we're actually at a level almost of a barley wine uh, with that, except that it's lighter than a barley wine and it's not as heavily hopped as a barley wine and it's, it's, it's easier drinking than a barley wine. But again, about 11.5% alcohol compared to typical beer running in the 35 to 4.5% range. But that is my big one, folks. That's, that's, that's the one that will make having all the equipment, and doing all the work worthwhile in the first place. It's, it's, it's an amazing, complex beer that's almost, I mean, you're looking at with five pounds of honey, we're almost moving into like a beer-meat hybrid. Um, but you've got to use the good Belgian ale yeast with that. You've got to pitch your honey two weeks into the fermentation process, and you've got to let the bottles age. And the more you drink early, the more you will regret it Uh, when you have that last six pack available and it is six months old or it is nine months old or it is a year old and you got if you, you haven't made any more and if you want more you're going to have to wait that long for it to get like that again. Uh, so this is one to maybe not your first batch, learn your processes, get your sanitation right, two or three happy healthy batches of beer into your brewing career, brew some of this and put it away. And if you want to like make this like your special beer or something like it, your special beer, brew it once a quarter uh, and, and find a special hidey hole to keep stuff like this uh, for that long-term special occasion, special gift type scenario. Uh, my belief is you can't buy anything even remotely similar to this. I've had, I love Trappist Ale styles. That's why I, I tried to do something like this. But this simple recipe has done more for my happiness as a brewer than anything else I've ever done. I'm going to give you another one of my 
my formulations um, that I worked on for a long time to come up with a long aging ale. This is a true barley wine, so this is this is also up in the neighborhood of 11 to 12 percent. Uh, it's much more bitter. It's much more deep bodied. It doesn't rely on honey to get anything. It's all derived from uh, malt. It uses an awful lot of malt. It uses an awful awful lot of specialty grains, and it uses an awful lot of hops. Uh, it's called Copperhead Barley Wine. And uh, you're going to start out with a base. And uh, you're going to use six pounds of plain malt extract, so your light-colored malt extract. Uh, you're going to use three pounds of plain dry malt extract. So six pounds of syrup, three pounds of dry. Two pounds of plain amber malt extract to start to give it that copperish color. You're going to use also two pounds of carapils malt as a specialty grain. Uh, you're going to, and, and, and that is all your, uh, your grain and your specialty grain. So your only specialty grain in this one is your carapils malt. And between the amber extract and the carapils malt, we're going to get a very coppery colored final product with this. Our, um, our hops for bittering are going to be a lot. Two ounces of Northern Brewer hops, and you're going to want to get about 14 HBUs out of that. So adjust your Northern Brewer up or down to get about 14 HBUs. One ounce of Fugel hops, approximately four HBUs. One ounce of Cascade hops, approximately five HBUs. Remember what I said, that things like Cascade bring some flavor through even if they're only used in bittering. That's why the Cascade's here. There's going to put a little citrus note in the back of this beer. Our finishing hops... We're going to do all for just five minutes at the end, and we're going to use a half ounce of Saz, a half ounce of Holotol, and a half ounce of Fugles. doesn't matter what the alpha hoss it is with those because we're not going to have them in there long enough. They're going to go at the end of the boil for the last five minutes of the boil, and we're going to use two, because this is a, a very high-gravity beer, we're going to use a good English ale yeast, a dry yeast for this is just fine, or you can use a Y-yeast liquid ale product, but you're going to use an English ale yeast on this. If you're using dry, you're going to use two packets. If you're going to use uh, a, a, the liquid yeast, you can use one. It'll, it'll handle it for you. And you're also going to, again, cheat with this dry champagne yeast, okay? And uh, you're going to brew this like any other batch of beer. You're going to put your specialty grains in your Carapils malt. You're going to do that um, from the time the water's cold up till it starts to get ready to boil. Right before it boils, you're going to pull it out and, and push out all your excess goodness out of that grain. You're going to stir in all that malt extract. That's going to be a lot. Uh, you're going to have to do a lot of stirring with this one to keep it from sticking. Uh, you're going to get it up to a boil. You're going to go ahead and toss in. Uh, all those great hops, the Cascade Fugles and Northern Brewer. You're going to boil that for a full 60-minute boil. Uh, then you're going to add your Sass, Halatar, and Fugles for five minutes at the end. Uh, chill it, get it into your fermenter. You're going to ferment that for, again, just like the other one, about two weeks. And uh, two weeks into it, you're going to go ahead and pitch a culture of champagne yeast. And this one you're going to probably want to, after that, you're going to want to rack it to a secondary fermenter. You're going to let it settle. You're going to rack it to a second, would you be, I guess, a tertiary, a third fermenter. You're going to let that settle. You want to do that in about two-week intervals. So you've got this in the fermenter for about six weeks. By six weeks, you should have, this should be fully fermented out. And it should be nice and clear looking. If it's not clear looking, rack it again. Let this stuff clear before you bottle it. You really have to. Um, you, the reason you need two packs of champagne yeast, though, is this one gets up there and has some issues with whether or not it's even going to be able 
to ferment well for for you to bottle condition it. So what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to take a pack of champagne yeast and pitch it right before you bottle it just to make sure that this is going to have enough viable yeast to carbonate for you. And then use um, one and a quarter cups of light malt extract. Again, no sugar in this one. Uh, no table sugar, no corn sugar, no honey, no nothing. Uh, in your, in your, your, uh, your priming mixture, prime and bottle and let this condition for at least six months. Maybe pull out three or four bottles, one at two weeks, one at a month, one at two months. Taste them and make notes and then taste it again four to six months out. Um, this is another one that's going to change over time, and that makes it kind of neat. And by tasting it, even when you know it's premature, um, you'll 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 get a feeling for how the aging process actually affects it. Uh, that's another one of my barley wines. Maybe one day, maybe one day, I don't know. Maybe one day I'll give you guys a recipe for uh, my barley wine barley wine called Tribute to the Vine, and that is the hot vine. Uh, but I'm not ready to release that one just yet. Here's one that's just a slightly modified version of um, of Charlie Papazian's uh, Cherry Fever Stout. Uh, you want to use about three and a third pounds of dark malt extract and about two and a half to three pounds, and I've done both and it works out just fine, of a um, amber malt extract. So about three and a half pounds of dark and about two and a half pounds of amber uh, then you want to use one and a half pounds of plain, dark, dried malt extract. A lot of dark going on here to get that stout. You want, for your specialty grains, one pound of crystal malt, one half pound of roasted barley, uh, one half pound of black patent malt. This is going to be a very coffee-ish flavored thing, a very dark coffee-ish flavored thing. For your hops, you're going to want to use about two ounces of northern brewer hops. You want to push it up to about... 15, 16 home bitterness units. The reason you're going to do that is Charlie's recipe called for hop-flavored light malt extract syrup. And I don't like to use malt uh, hopped extract at all. So I omitted that. So his one and a half of Northern Brewer, I push up to about two uh, to get a little bit more bitterness. Your finishing hops for this are going to be Willamette. You're going to use them at the end. About eight teaspoons of gypsum. You're going to try to get very hard water like they have in uh, in the U.K. for that. Uh, and then you're going to want about five pounds of sour cherries. And uh, pretty simple. You take your specialty grains, put them in your sack. You do the same thing we always do. I won't go there again. Uh, bring to a boil. Boil 60 minutes with your Northern Brewer hops. Um, at the end, so the boil is completely over, pitch your Willamette hops and drop your five pounds of crushed cherries in. Uh, then put that into your fermenter, pitch your yeast, Rack off in about a week to two weeks, depending on how things are working out for you, to a secondary fermenter. This is where you're going to get into your glass carboy at that point. Let it finish out fermenting, bottle it, and it's it's a pretty quick one, folks. Um, you can have it maybe in your primary fermenter for a week, your secondary fermenter for a week. Um, bottle it in 14 days after it's in, 10 to 14 days after it's in the bottle. It's ready to drink. Um, the way I describe it in show notes and the way I'll describe it here, liquid sex in a bottle. It's... It's fabulous. It's a dessert beer. But it's not sweet. It's not sweet. But instead of having that sweet piece of cake, right, that dark chocolate cake with cherry syrup or something like that, have one of these for dessert. It'll put you to bed with a nice nightcap and uh, 
I, I, you got to try it. That's all I can say. This is one of those ones that, till you experience it, you won't really get it. You want to make it easy? You want to make it real simple? Um, go ahead and get a good cherry extract from your home brew shop. And if it says use one bottle to five gallons, use one and a half bottles for a stout because it's going to overpower the cherries a little bit more. And uh, brew a basic stout recipe, any good old stout recipe you got, and uh, use the cherry extract. And it's it's damn close. Raspberry is also fabulous. So both of those you can substitute raspberries for cherries. I've never done a blackberry stout. My instinct is it would be fabulous. Why do I think it would be fabulous? Because one of my favorite easy-drinking dark ales is blackberry porter. And this is how you make blackberry porter. I'm going to start abbreviating the explanations because you know the steps by now. Uh, you want to use about four and a half pounds of amber malt extract. You want to use about three and a half pounds of dark malt extract. Can be syrup, can be dry. I don't care. It's a basic porter recipe. You want to use one pound, one pound of black patent malt. Uh, you want to use about an ounce and a half northern brewer hops. Uh, are a great hop for porter, about 13 HBUs, about 13, uh, so, you know, uh, multiply your ounces to get about 13, 12, 13 will work well for this. Um, use one ounce of Tetnanger hops for finishing. Sass would work good as a finishing hop for this. Um, Fugles would work good as a finishing hop for this. Uh, we're not trying to be true to any style because this isn't true to any style. So you can get kind of creative with your finishing hops, but about an ounce of a good finishing hop that you like, that you think would complement black very well. And um, then you're going to use an ale yeast. Now, porter is a lager, but I'm going to do an ale porter, and it's going to come out just fine, and you're going to like it. Um, I, I promise you that, and then I don't have to worry about lagering it. And what you're going to use is about five pounds of wild blackberries, put in at the, you've finished your boil, you've pitched your finishing hops, drop your blackberries into pasteurize, and ferment out, Rack off to a secondary just like we've been doing. Unbelievable and very, very easy drinking. If you want to do that with lager yeast and make a true porter, more power to you. The problem, again, with lagering is you've got to have a place where you can keep it cool enough, long enough to get the lagering process done. One thing I didn't tell you yesterday, if you see a packet of dry yeast and it says lager yeast, it's not lager yeast. Uh, lager yeast are not stable in a dry environment, only in a liquid environment. So that wraps things up. I, I think what I want to finish with today, though, is uh, I gave you some recipes. I'll, I'll, I'll try to get them written down for you. Uh, I'm kind of you know doubling up on shows this week, and uh, the wife's out of town, and I got to get back and forth to the office uh, twice a day instead of once to take care of the dogs because they're alone. Um, so I don't know if I'll get it all written down, but. Um, you don't have to do exactly what I say, and you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid to try things. Get out there, get some books, and, and take some basic recipes. Make things like brown mild. Make a basic uh, amber uh, ale. Make a basic American ale, a basic English bitter, an English brown. Uh, not a brown mild, but a, a standard English brown ale. Uh, these are all easy. The, 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 the ales... Uh, the brown ales, the amber ales, the bitters, uh, the mild browns, they're all very, very, very easy, very fast, right? You're, again, we're talking from brew day to drink day, 20 days or less if you just knock it out. Um, and if you do those first, you'll get some confidence, and then you can start trying these more complex things. And then you'll just start saying, you know what, this would taste good if it had apples in it. And you'll just go out and get five pounds of apples, and you'll cut them up. You'll go to the... Uh, farmers market around harvest season and you'll get bruiser apples that don't really, you know, don't really look good for making, uh, for eating, but there's nothing wrong with them. 
so it'd be more of a cider type of apple. And you'll add that and you'll try it and you'll go, that was really good. It would be better next time if I added, huh, I wonder about ginger in there. A little bit of spice of ginger with the apple bite and, and, and brought the hops up a little bit more to compensate because it came out a little bit sweet. Right? I mean, these are the types of things that will happen if you'll just start experimenting. Beer's all about experimentation. It, pe people drive me nuts when they're like, well, I want to make beer just like Budweiser. Well, ah, why? Why when it's so cheap? But even, even if they're like a good beer like Chimay, I've given you something that's a, a Trappist style. You can make a Chimay clone. My God, it, you, you use some amber extract, Belgian candy sugar, the right yeast strain, the right hops. It's close. But why do you want to make anything that's exactly like anything you could go out and buy when you can make something that's unique to you? Um, most of my beers have their own unique names that I've given them, whether it's Jack's Classic Mild or, you know, Pollination Conversion. Or what, what did I end up calling that? Conversion Pollinator Triple. Uh, and I'm proud of that, that I've actually created these things. And if you're going to get into this hobby, that's the way to do it. I'll tell you another thing. I'm not big on the homebrew competitions. I think some of the stuff I've made would do very well in them. But I don't really care if five guys that do any, you know, that, that treat beer like it's wine like my beer. I care that I like my beer and the people I share my beer with like my beer. And I think that's the way to approach beer making, wine making, cooking, and just about everything that we do in life. I think there's a lot to learn about life, history, and science from beer. Hopefully these two days have primed your interest, piqued your interest, and you're ready to try something. And hopefully, hopefully you veteran brewers uh, that yesterday's show was like, yeah, I know that, yeah, I know that, yeah, I know that. Hopefully the, the end of today's show gave you some new things to try. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for